Let's dive in. So as I, as I kind of um, dug into this topic of joy this week, um, I spent some time contemplating um, my most joyful memories, like the most joyful moments of my life. Um, and believe me, I, I've, I've had a crazy blessed life. So um, I was overwhelmed by like how many things I had to choose from, like how many joyful memories. Uh, but it was difficult to pick like the most joyful. Like was it some of the like game winning moments in high school football? Like those, those are sitting in there, you know, real, real joyful moments. Accepting my football college scholarship. That was a, that was a good day. That was a joyful day. Was the night I accepted Jesus. That was like a really special night. Like I remember it vividly. Like that is a cool night. When I, when I met Esther, or our first kiss, our first kiss was a fun night. I had a whole crowd that I didn't know was watching from the balcony of this um, apartment where we kind of had a small group. And I walked her out, I gave her a kiss, and the whole group was standing on the balcony and they cheered. Like it was a, like when you have those movie moments, you know, like the kiss and the music stars. I, like I, I was this close to one of those moments. Like it was like that. When you have a crowd cheer for you the second you have your first kiss. Maybe it was my, my wedding day. That's a pretty cool day. Um, that was awesome. Or, or when my first child was born. That was awesome. Or my second. Or my third. Or my fourth. Yeah. Eventually, you, know, you just pop out and you kind of tell them where they're going to sleep. You know, that's where you'll, that'll be you. Um, <laughs> maybe it was seeing my kids get baptized. Those are cool days. Those are amazing days. But after a lot of contemplation, I landed um, on a night when a bunch of my buddies... We're going out drinking. <laughs> a couple of my good friends um, that I'd uh, known for years and years and years started hanging out with this kind of new guy and a couple of his friends. And a few of us were kind of doing some work together. And, uh, and after work one day, the whole group wanted to go to this bar and grill and have some food and kind of hang out and talk. And uh, so being the man of my house, um, I called my wife and I begged her, please, please, please let me go. Please let me go. And... Uh, and I, I assured her I, I wouldn't drink and I, would j- I just wanted to hang out with everybody and I promised to be home at whatever time she wanted and I think I even promised to do some extra chores or something, you know, but I'm kidding about all that. But um, but uh, but I, I, I did want to hang out with the guys and, and I could tell something wasn't right and so I made the mistake of asking if, ever, if that was okay. Um, and my wife's pre- a pretty good judge of character. Um, and so even though she kind of overrides this sometimes because she loves to give people the benefit of the doubt, she, uh, she, it's not uncommon for her to just get a feel about somebody, and so, especially when someone's trouble. And she definitely had this feeling about this new guy that had kind of come into our group all of a sudden. And so she told me she didn't feel real good about, um, about this, and she kind of had a bad feeling about it, and besides, she'd had a long day and could really use some help with the kids at home. And so I told her I would love um, to come home and be helpful while the guys went out and had fun. No, actually, I did go home pretty easily, but I was a turd about it. <laughs> like I was grumpy and I was harumphing, you know, making sure she knew. I was being real passive-aggressive so she knew that, uh, that even though I was being helpful, I didn't want to. Um, and uh, we both went to bed feeling pretty grumpy and lonely. Well, about 2 o'clock in the morning, our phone rings. And this is back when the phone was like on the wall with a cord. Um, you guys remember that? Uh, millennials, those were like these things that... No, um... They, uh, and, and it rings. And so she gets up and aunt, and the phone's on her side of the bed. So she gets up. It's like around the corner in the, in the kitchen and we had a real long cord. So she went over and she answered the phone and sat down on the, on the edge of the bed. And I can hear a woman screaming through the phone from my side of the bed that her husband's missing. Um, she's called several of our friends, including like my mentor, whom I would have been mortified to disappoint. Um, and while she was screaming into the phone, her husband came in the door. 
and he was uh, terribly intoxicated. He had apparently thrown up on a police officer's shoes. His wife had never seen him have a single drink, let alone be this drunk. Um, so apparently at some point in the evening, the group moved from the barn grill to a plain old bar. And, and even though... Um, uh, you know, because I, I was hearing all these details like screamed from the phone. I was hearing all kinds of stuff. And so even though I probably would have come home when that transition took place, at that moment, 2 o'clock in the morning, I snuggled down in my bed and I was like, I am not in trouble. I'm finally not the one in trouble. Like, it was like, it was like I'm so used to being the one in trouble that I was just like flooded with joy that I was safe in my bed while all my buddies were out. I am not out doing dumb things. Um, but, okay, that was just a fun story to start with. But this morning, um, we're in our final week of Advent, and it's kind of special this year because we get the full week to contemplate the Advent virtue of joy. Um, oftentimes when we preach the fourth week of Advent, Christmas is like two days later, so you don't really get much time to, to spend contemplating the, the final virtue. Um, but this week, Christmas is not till set, we don't light the Christ candle till Saturday night, and so we get to kind of dwell on joy all week. Um, and we spent this series talking about uh, the music that plays in the background or the score um, to the movie of our lives, if you like that better. Um, we've been trying to pause and kind of listen to the songs that our culture is using as a soundtrack right now and just kind of uh, dig into the lectionary songs, the music, the, the psalms for each week of Advent um, and uh, just attempting to maybe change the station, uh, play a different soundtrack, pick a better song. So as we dove into Advent, virtue of peace, um, we kind of listened and found that our world is opposed to peace. Um, in fact, everything in our world uh, is set on driving division and animosity, and we're finding out that the, the worst part of this um, kind of symphony of discord that is playing in our minds um, is that it's, uh, uh, it, it, it affects us too. Um, songs get stuck in your head, and the chaos of our culture... Um, is just as loud and disturbing in our heads oftentimes as it is out in the world because that stuff gets gets stuck like any bad music. Um, our culture is hunting for peace, um, but instead they're they're throwing out everything that has ever brought peace to our world and uh, and choosing animosity instead. And so we we decided, like the psalm writer of Psalms 42, we can speak to our own souls. We can go, what is going on here? Why are you listening to this music? Change the station. Um, so we stood with David in the center of Jerusalem as he sang, not of a city that was, but of a city that he knew was going to be, a city that could be, um, a city of peace. That was what he chose to focus on. He chose to dig into the idea of, let this be a city of peace, a place of peace. Because if he, uh, if he embraced this chaos that was everywhere, he would never get to what he was dreaming of. And so he had to picture what was in order to get there. Um, then we talked about love and how our culture is singing... Um, an unfortunate song um, that that anything that uh, that is born in love, if it hurts at all, is actually hate, and that's a terrible song. When you can convince somebody that the the cure is actually poison, you've already done your job. You don't have to do anymore because because you know that the broken people will never turn to the core toward, toward the cure if you can convince them that it's bad for them. So we. We committed to change the songs of our lives, to cry out for real love, biblical love, even if it stings. Anything that makes us better and prosperous and flourishing, even if it hurts, is good for us, and we need that. I mean, the last week we looked at hope and how our world is selling hope wholesale right now. Um, hope for a smaller waistline, hope that 
Um, you'll finally find Mr. Right as long as you just keep dumping Mr. Wrong and move on to the next one. You'll finally find him. The world's selling hope that if you stop eating this and start driving that and, of course, vote for them, then you'll be able to save the planet and, and all the suffering upon it. We're, we're selling this idea that, that uh, if you just do things the way you're supposed to, everything will be awesome. Uh, and into these promises of cheap hope comes the psalmist saying that this is dangerous. This is so dangerous. These hopes, says Psalms 146, will not satisfy. And neurobiology agrees that, that hope dashed is actually worse than never having hope. Um, and so the psalmist warns us that uh, to only put our hope in God, putting our hope in anything else um, will not hold up. Nothing else can hold up under your hopes but God. Um, and so we have this tension uh, between a world that is uh, telling us that we can fix all of our problems if we just do X, Y, and Z. Um, and in the other hand, you got Jesus going, hey, in this world, you'll have troubles, but I have overcome the world. The, the true hope is in the one that is honest about the way the world is, but offers us um, something on the other side. And for me, um, I believe also for the writer of Psalms 146, uh, I'm more comfortable with that kind of hope, a hope that's honest about the way things are, um, that, we, that we are going to have hard times, but also offers this kind of resurrection proven, undeniable hope of heavenly victory. Well, this week is Joy Week, uh, and since we've been doing a little, little neuroscience anyway um, for this kind of Advent series, uh, I figured we would dive into a little bit of, of what the brain and joy have in common. Um, joy is one of the five core emotions in the brain. Some count surprise as one of the core emotions and say six, but other people put surprise in the fight, flight, or, or freeze response and not so much an emotion but either way five or six spots what they mean by that is there's five or six spots in the brain that light up when you feel an emotion and so they can identify that and no matter you know different emotions become a nuance of two different emotion centers but but we only have five places that light up when we feel an emotion and and they they can spot these under fmri imaging and so uh uh fmri imaging imaging anyway um ADD is fun. And as you, um, as we discussed last year, joy, um, as kind of a neurological emotion, is unique um, because it's comprised entirely of mirror neurons, um, which are these kind of fancy brain cells that are fully developed brain cells that, um, that don't know what to do until they're programmed, so to speak. Um, by seeing emotions, they mirror it. Um, and so they only learn to... Um, to feel joy when they see joy. Um, these, these neurons are built by mirroring it in someone else. And so with the, the joy center of the brain and a little baby's um, brain, it's wired for joy, but not until they experience joy. And so when mom and dad are smiling at them and loving on them and just kind of pouring joy at them, they see it and their brain learns to reflect it. The, these mirror neurons learn to reflect it. It's one of the saddest things in the world when you uh, when they show the brain scans of different people. Some of them have a really big joy center when they feel joy, and some of them have a really small one. They just never develop the the, the ability to to feel as much joy, um, which tells us we have a big job to do as grown ups. Like we have to we have to 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 pour joy at our children because that's how they learn to experience it. And uh, we have to show them the joy we feel in them. Um, and that's how they learn to feel it themselves. Um, but joy is also special. So it's not just like any joy. There's, there's something special about joy. It turns out that joy is almost entirely relational. 
um, the human mind is wired in such a way that we perceive joy primarily through the face and facial expressions of people. Um, when they ask to read just body language and they take the face out of it, um, like 75% of people misread joy when it was in the body. Like even when people are like, they're like, ooh, that looks angry. If you take the face out of it, they look like you're beating the sky. Like we, we almost entire, like almost everybody misinterprets joy if you take the face out of it. All the other emotions, the differential is very different. Like it's, uh, it's, uh, but joy for some reason, we need facial expression to recognize joy. We see joy in other people's faces way more than we do in the rest of their body language. Anger, like we pick that up immediately. Like the second you see somebody, like you don't even need a face and you're like, are you mad? Like, uh, but joy is all in the facial expressions. Now, we covered most of this last year. Um, so if you want to go a little deeper, you can go back to the YouTube archives and, and find it. But, um, but I want to recap kind of what neuro, the neurological nature of joy because it comes into play in this morning psalm, which I think is important. So we're going to read um, from Psalms 180. This is the lectionary passage for this week. Um, and I'll just stick with the verses that the lectionary assigned us rather than do the whole psalm. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of Asaph, to be sung to the tune, Lilies of the Covenant. Please listen, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph's descendants like a flock. O God, enthroned above the cherubim, display your radiant glory to Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Show us your mighty power. Come to rescue us. Turn us again to yourself, O God. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. O Lord, God of heaven's armies, how long will you be angry with our prayers? You have fed us with sorrow and made us drink tears by the bucketful. You've made us the scorn of our neighboring nations. Our enemies treat us like a joke. Turn us again to yourself, O God of heaven's armies. Make us make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. Strengthen the man of you love, the son of your choice. Then you will never uh, again then we will never again abandon you. Revive us so we can call on your name once more. Turn us again to yourself, O Lord God of heaven's armies. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. I assume you can hear that repeating refrain. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. And, and so before we dive into joy um, and, and the way it's attached to God's face, I do want to, to look at some of the other core emotions that pop up in this psalm because it's kind of interesting. In verse 4 it says, um, How long will you be angry with us. So we have anger in verse 5. You've made us the scorn. Um, whoops, did I miss one? I did miss one. I don't know if you have it out there. Um, but verse 5, um, he talks about uh, sadness. Did I put it up there? I don't think I did. Huh? Oh, sorrow. Yeah, that's not in my notes for some reason. You fed us with sorrow, made us drink tears by the bucketful. We have anger. We have sadness. Then in verse 6 he says, you've made us the scorn of our neighbors. One of the core emotions is disgust. And disgust is, is a little tricky. We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, but uh, disgust. And then what was the last one? Uh, yeah, our enemies treat us like a joke. Um, so So now you have... I have some weird stuff going on in my notes here. Yeah, so, so we have to extrapolate a little bit of this one, but in a world where your enemies killed you and enslaved you and like took your women, I can't imagine you could say that statement without some fear. And so you have anger, you have sadness, you have disgust, you have fear. You have all the other five emotions coming to play um, in this psalm. So this big stew of core emotions that the psalmist is kind of roiling through that he's either experiencing or experiencing from God 
Um, and none of them are pleasant. And all he's crying out for through this whole thing is God's face. God, let your face shine down on us. This kind of anthropomorphic body part associated with joy. Like, God, I'm experiencing anger and, and sadness and fear and disgust. And all I want is your face. Let your face shine down upon me. And I think this psalm sums up the plight of, of our world. Especially today. Because isn't joy what, like what we're after? Like, isn't that what it's, what it's ultimately all about? I mean, don't, don't, don't we just kind of all have this deep desire for just like one good day? God, I just, if things could go right just once and I could just experience joy, please. I think most humans are wired to want joy, but it's also a slippery slope. Because what's happening right now in, in, in our, in, in our world is closer to what we would like call a lust for, for the core emotion of joy. Maybe not real joy, but the core emotion of joy. And, and because this isn't the joy we talk about, this is like that dopamine laced neurological stuff that we generally call happiness. Like that's what the world is after. Because neurologically, we don't separate joy and happiness. It's just anything that lights up that center of the brain, they call joy. But theologically, we do draw a distinction, right, between joy and happiness all the time. That, 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 feel good rush, that kind of hedonistic pleasure. Neurologically they still call that joy. And our world has given itself over to this experience, this short lived joy, to the point that we'll sacrifice almost anything on the altar of joy. Right? Dopamine, that's what lights up the joy center, dopamine. We hear about it all the time. And we all carry mine's back there so I don't have my I was gonna pull it out. Little dopamine devices in our pockets, right? Little things to to, to get a little shot of dopamine so that we can experience, like, scratch that little joy itch with just a tap and a swipe. Do you crave attention? We've got it taken care of. Do you, do you like shopping? Done. Uh, maybe it's gossip. No problem. Maybe your thing is news and information. Everything you could want. Do you like being mean to people? We have that. Porn? Right in your pocket. Maybe you just like an echo chamber. You want everybody to agree with you. We've got the place for that. Television, music, movies, an endless supply. Gaming, more than you could ever play. Mind-numbing puzzles, comedians, videos of animals doing funny things, people with people tripping and falling. All of it. Whatever makes you happy, it's in your pocket. In 30-second little bursts to just keep the dopamine coming. All with your thumb. And don't think for a second it's not like designed, a designed dopamine pump. In the early days of Facebook, when they were kind of creating the idea of a feed, and posting to a feed, so brand new, 2007. They were, they were actually just before 2000. They went public in 2007. This is probably 2005, 2006. They were, they were uh, finding that people loved reading posts. Everybody like got into reading, but nobody, there was no real excitement, no dopamine when you posted. Unless you were like narcissistic. And back then, narcissism was still considered like an outlier, like uh, an antisocial behavior. Like back then, they didn't want, like only the people who already had narcissistic tendencies enjoyed posting. Everybody enjoyed reading the post. Like what's everybody doing? Like we all have that little bug. Like what's going on in the world? What's everybody doing? But nobody was really enjoying posting. And so they were having a hard time getting people to post. And, but they were doing these brain scans while they were going on to figure out what people enjoyed about Facebook. And, and one guy had an idea. What if we gave people a way to rate a post, like, like judge a post? And the, the like button, the thumbs up, was created. And they found that like the amount of dopamine when somebody had a post get liked, 
Like, and this is back when your phone didn't just notify you. You had to log on. They said the second they created the like button, the logons became almost like addictive. Like you had to go see how many likes you have. Oh, I got 10 more likes. Like in the early days of Facebook, they figured out by giving people, just adding the thumbs up, created this huge dopamine rush. And it took like two years before almost everybody was posting like the people that they called narcissists in the beginning. Like suddenly you had these people that were the outliers of society. Like, well, we can't count them because they're weird. They would, you know, they'll post anything. They're, they just love the attention. Within like two years, almost everybody was posting as much as those guys. They were the outliers. Just by creating this thing. And the way they knew that it worked was they were, they were watching the dopamine levels in people. When you would like a post, they would get this, ooh, that felt good. Somebody liked my stuff. And so they, they create, and, and don't think for a second that everything in our phone isn't created that way. It's created to be addictive. If it increases dopamine, uh, and thereby increasing the, the potential for addiction, they add it. It's in there. And I can't prove the correlation with these studies, but it, it seems that as we've grown more and more and more trained to chase that dopamine in our phones, the entire world, especially the young people who just grew up with this like fire hose of garbage attached to the front of their head, uh, that, that the, the normal features in life, the things that are supposed to give us true joy, have grown less and less and less. Hedonism is the new norm. If it feels good, do it. The joy centers of our brains have grown numb with stimuli, um, even as we've grown starved for anything of true meaning. And that isn't even the worst part. The psalmist seems to have his finger on the pulse of our culture because he describes as all these um, rampant emotions come flooding in when all he's looking for is true joy. Like, God, I just want to see your face. I just want the joy of your face. And I'm, I'm feeling anger and I'm feeling fear and I'm feeling you know, disgust and, and all of these things when all I'm looking for is joy. And isn't that what our society is experiencing? It's like we're chasing all of these hedonistic experiences. I just want to feel good for a minute. I just want to zone out for a minute. I just want to numb for a minute. And what we're getting is everything but joy. As we search for joy, you know, we're offered, and we're offered all these paltry substitutes. And instead we're getting all these emotions that we're trying to avoid. They're getting worse. They're getting bigger. We're getting flooded with them. I barely have to talk about fear. We're afraid of everything. Fear today is unbelievable. Chapman University does this study every year. They've done it for like 10 years. Uh, America's top 10 fears. This was the 2022 list. Uh, I'll, start, I'll start at 10. Um, biological warfare. Like, when was the last time you just walked around afraid of biological warfare? Now half the country's like 51.5% of the, of the people surveyed are terrified of biological warfare. Pollution of the oceans, rivers, and lakes. Economical financial collapse. Not having enough money for the future. Pollution of drinking water. The U.S. becoming involved in another world war. People I love dying is number four. Russia using nuclear weapons is number three. People I love becoming seriously ill, that's number two. And corrupt government officials is the number one fear in America right now. Which is crazy. Now, here's, uh, and, and just barely missing the top ten, like 11, 12, and 13 are mass shootings, violent overthrow of the American government. Like people are just walking around afraid of that. And immigration. Like, it's terrible. And, I, and here's what I want you to think about. I'm going to read this list one more time, kind of fast. Think about how much of this you have control over in your average life. 
Think about this list. How much, how much you, you could actually control. Corrupt government officials, people I love becoming seriously ill, Russia using nuclear weapons, people I love dying, the U.S. becoming involved in another world war, pollution of drinking water, not having enough money for the future, economic collapse, pollution of the ocean rivers and lakes, and biological warfare. So basically, we're walking around afraid of stuff we can't even impact, which, which I think is designed. I think, it's, I think that's on purpose. If, if, if someone wants us to cringe in fear, why not use stuff that you can't even fix? Just to be scared of things you have no control over. How much more satanic could you get? And sadness is just as out of control. I googled sadness in America, um, and these, this is the first page. I didn't go to the second page. You know they always say, if you have to hide a dead body, where's the safest place? The second page of a Google search? Because nobody goes there. You know, nobody. But... Um, this is what popped up on page one of my Google search. These are all the headlines. Why, uh, why American teens are so sad? That's the Atlantic. Why um, is America so depressed? That's the New York Times. American teens are really, really depressed. That's Newsweek. The third, a third of America now shows signs of clinical anxiety and depression. That's Washington Post. Why is American teenagers so sad and depressed? Uh, 51% of all Americans say they feel sad and depressed. These are just the headlines. Depression rates in the U.S. triple since the pandemic. Why is, is America so depressed? That was page one. Like, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, and there was also like a, like a clinical study, like a professional study that I actually read. It would take too long to go through all the details. But every single marker in the study showed everything we, every way we have of measuring stress, anxiety, depression is, is heading the wrong way. Like, fast. Like, it's, it's like, you know, you see these, and then it just like plummets. Like, really, since the phones came out. Anyway, disgust is a little different to talk about because it, this is an emotion that we generally uh, split into several emotions. Disgust with your own actions is generally called guilt. Distrust, disgust with like who you are we generally call shame. Um, and then you have kind of disgust with other people. So disgust, they usually branch off because it's, it's pretty important. But disgust right now is everywhere. Um, and everything, you know, you're supposed to like disgust toward, you're supposed to have disgust toward almost everything right now. There's not really enough studies on disgust. There's like one guy who's like the disgust guy because not very many people really know how to study it. But um, he was studying disgust in our culture. Right now, like the levels of disgust that people have towards weird things, if you're white, you're supposed to be disgusted about that. And a lot of people are. Like uh, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're um, what was the other one? Uh, yeah, you're supposed to be disgusted by your race. You should be disgusted by anybody. If you have money or privilege, you're supposed to be disgusted with that. Um, you're, if you're straight, like 95% of the people in America, you're supposed to be disgusted by that, which means the majority of us are supposed to be disgusted with ourselves, I guess. Um, basically, and this is like in a survey. Like, like what disgusts you the most? The fact that I'm straight. Like, who's, who puts that in a survey? Like, I hate the fact that I'm normal. God. Like, why, why, you know, I wish I was one of the, the outliers. It's crazy. Did you have a question? Not a question, but you were talking before about, like, what media is feeding us. Media is constantly telling us we need to not be straight. Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt. Yeah. So basically the only thing right now, you know, uh, that you're supposed to feel is disgust. You're supposed to be unhappy with everything, disgusted with your country, disgusted with... Disgust is selling cheap. Right now we expect everybody... To be, and, and anger is right on disgust coattails. Almost everything you say about disgust applies to anger as well. Um, and this is the one that kind of drives me crazy because I think 
um, this one is like out of control primarily um, because we, we have this, uh, this new way to interact in our culture that requires zero empathy. Like empathy is learned. You're supposed to, kids are supposed to be mean. Kids are supposed to be awful to each other. Uh, a kid comes to the playground and they're like, you're, you're ugly. And then the, the other kid's face like crinkles up. And they're like, ooh, I didn't like the way that feels when I told them that. Like I saw their face cry and that felt bad. I don't want to do that. And so we learn, kids are mean to each other and they see the impact of it and they, they don't like that. They like, they don't, they don't, they're not like evil to the core. They just don't like, so they learn by being mean. And the worst thing we have going on right now is you can sit online and be mean and never have to see a face. You never have to see the impact of your meanness. And so you never, so kids are never learning the empathy that they learn by being mean to each other in school and by being mean to each other in the playground. Like it's terrible that you say that they're supposed to be mean to each other, but that's part of the learning process. You learn empathy by being mean. And now they can be as mean as they want and never have to learn the empathy. And so this like, this animosity and anger and meanness is just like growing. So at a very young age, when we hurt each other, it's supposed to be for, for the good. And what's crazy is right now, we have, uh, you know, mass shooting made the top of our list. And almost like the world's just gone, not comfortable, but like expectant of mass shootings. And every single time, we all know this, every single time there's a mass shooting, we talk about guns. Like, you know, should guns be here, blah, blah, blah. And nobody ever thinks to question, guns have always been legal. Why in the world is our culture suddenly making so many people that want to go in and shoot innocent people? Like, when was the last time you heard somebody talking about, like, what could we possibly be doing wrong that we are now suddenly making so many people that want to shoot people? Like, it's not the gun. Guns aren't new. Guns have been here since the beginning. So, and suddenly, we do have a problem. I'm not saying mass shootings aren't a problem. It is weird how many people now just want to walk into a place and shoot people. Like, what are we doing different? And that's what I think we need to look at. Like, why are we making so many angry people? Like, what is happening in our culture? What are, what are we doing wrong that so many people are that angry? But we don't talk about that. Anger is rampant. So in America today, we're overloaded with every possible emotion except true life-giving joy. As we chase, and, and what's funny is, is in the midst of all this emotional turmoil, if you ask the average person, they're just chasing joy. They just want to be happy. It's like hedonism you know, on steroids, and, and we're getting everything but true joy. And here's where, where, uh, where this year's psalm, this year's study, can pay real dividends. We talked two weeks ago about the emotion cycle. You guys remember that? Um, if you experience stimuli or even a thought, um, and this happens faster than you can rationalize it, um, a reactive emotion occurs. Like you, you respond to the stimuli. And this happens by your brain releasing a cocktail of chemicals into your blood for the emotion. And then, after the, the chemicals hit your bloodstream, and what's funny is your brain makes the chemicals or calls for them to be released. Some come from other places, adrenaline and stuff. But, but your brain calls for the release, and you can feel them in your body. That's why we, even though it's a brain thing, we call them feelings, because we actually feel them. We feel the, the, the chemical in our body. And, and, uh, and then we enter what's called the judgment cycle, where you're like, why am I feeling this? And usually you script a narrative that fits. A lot of times it works. We talk about this. If someone's being stupid and you feel anger, you're like, oh, I feel anger because you're being stupid. Like, and it, it fits. But a lot of times it doesn't. You know, somebody will say something and it hurts your feelings and you're like, and, and, and it just hurts. And so you're like, why? 
this happens so fast, I make it sound like it's more rational than it really is, but you're like, why did that hurt my feelings? Probably because I'm dumb. Everybody thinks I'm dumb. And you start to say things in yourself that reinforce those chemicals. And then your brain makes more of the chemicals because now you think you're dumb and you get caught in what's called an emotion cycle or emotion loop where it starts with a chemical. And, and so we talked about the fact that if you can, and this is kind of the, the newest um, cognitive therapy, if you can freeze when you feel an emotion and just focus on the emotion itself, where do I feel that? I feel it in my gut. I've, I've got the butterflies and blah, blah, blah. And you don't get yourself in the judgment cycle, that chemical only lasts about 90 seconds. If you can, if you can hold out for 90 seconds before you start cycling that thing, the chemical will, will mellow. And you can think clearly again. They weren't trying to hurt my feelings. They're just talking goofy and, you know, whatever. Like you don't get caught in the cycle. And, and uh, the, the beautiful thing is that we can actually use that to our benefit, believe it or not. The cycle can work for us. Um, and this is where the theological definition of joy and the kind of psychological, neurobiological definition of joy kind of come together. Because if we start with a thought or a stimuli that triggers the cocktail associated with joy, and you use the judgment cycle to reinforce that, you can actually create a more sustainable joy the, instead of letting it dissipate. And here's what that means. So if you're like, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Or you quote the scripture that God is for us, nothing can be against us. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And you make those statements and, and, and it starts to create that feel-good chemical in your brain. You can actually reinforce that. Say it again. God is good all the time. And the more we, the more we reinforce those, the, the more the judgment cycle that fits the feeling starts to, starts to flow in us. And suddenly we start to create this sustainable feeling of joy. You can kind of produce your own emotion cycle toward the positive. But here's the deal. This behavior requires both the limbic cortex and the cerebral cortex, which is kind of important. The limbic cortex is where all your emotions are. That's the part that releases the chemicals. The cerebral cortex is the logical part. And you can't lie to the logical part. So you have to actually mean it. That God is good all the time. And all the time God is good. You have to actually believe what you're saying. And I think this is one of the reasons the psalmist doesn't just quote a random scripture. Praise for God's face. God, I need to experience your joy. I need to see you smiling down on me. Because a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. You can think on that all day. If you're like, I have, I have experienced God. And somebody's like, God, but, yeah, but here's... And I was like, all I know is I've experienced God. Like there's the old, there's the old example, you know, if I come to work and... And I'm looking for my boss, and his car's in the parking lot. I'm like, oh, he's probably there. You know, and, and then I come in and then I talk to his secretary, and I'm like, hey, is the boss here? Yeah, he's in his office. Okay, more reason to believe. I look under the door, and I see a light in his office, and I kind of hear his voice rumbling. More reason. But the second I see my boss, and somebody comes up to me and goes, hey, is the boss here? You don't go, yeah, I saw his car, talked to his secretary, saw a light, heard a voice. No, you go, yeah, I just talked to him. He's in his office. Like, all those other things are good, but that's not what makes you know the boss is there. You know the boss is there because you experience the boss. Like, and, and so a lot of us use those things to step towards God. But once we experience God, you, you, those aren't the reasons you believe anymore. You believe because you've experienced him. You know he's real. And that's what the psalmist is, is praying for. God, just shine your face upon us. Then I can know you're there and then I can feel the joy and sustain 
the joy. None of that was in my notes. Now I've got to figure out where I was. And so we get caught in this, in this emotion cycle where, where we, we experience God's face. And then we have to sustain that. And so, we, so, so while we're still in the judgment cycle of that good feeling, we say it again, and we feel it again, and we say it again, and we feel it again, and we say it again. And what's that start to sound like? It starts to sound like singing. That's what we do when we sing. Have you ever noticed how repetitive some songs are? That's by design. We discussed over and over again the kind of healthy neurological you know, activity of singing, how good it is for you, how it releases so many good neurotransmitters and, and, and it's, it actually increases our immune system. Like It does some crazy things in our body, the act of singing. So just imagine if you're singing about things that cause joy, how good God is. How amazing God is. Even when you're like, the front of your brain is like, I don't even know if this is, if this is, I'm having a rough day. And then you come in and you start singing about God's joy and it starts to reinforce how you feel about God and, and you can get caught. This is why I love the old hymns. When you mix such good theology and such amazing things about God with the act of singing and good music, it's, it is so good for us. And so back in this morning psalm, the psalmist repeats this refrain over and over and over again. Make your face shine upon us. Only then will we be saved. Make your face shine upon us. Only then will we be saved. And, and just like any good song, it has a chorus that they play about five times. Because you need this repeated over and over and over again. Picturing the face of God smiling down on His people, saving them. And yeah, then life steps back in and things are rough. I need to sing it again. God smiling down on me. Save us. And we just keep repeating that refrain over and over and over again. There's a ton of psychological wisdom in the people of God gathering to sing. I know it's weird that we all like, like who else gathers once a week just to sing together? And like, and it's a bizarre to it, to like an amateur band that, you know, like, and we all stand up and face the amateur band and sing out loud. Like, it's a weird thing we do. But psychology is proving over and over and over again, it's a crazy healthy thing. It is so good for us. And the fact that our, that our ancient text puts a songbook right in the middle. No other ancient text has that. Like God was saying from the very beginning, you need to sing together. It changes everything. It is so good for you. If you want to experience joy, you have to sing about it. Because just going, I need to feel good. Why do I feel so bad? doesn't work. You need to over and over and, and get one of those songs that just gets stuck in there for a while and let that booger just work on you. Is so good for you. Joy, real joy, biblical joy is not something the world can give. The song of the world is, if it feels good, do it. That's the song they're singing right now. If it feels good, do it. And that kind of joy um, is producing everything but. It's producing fear and anger and disgust and sadness. If you just look at our world for two seconds, you see people begging for a good experience, begging for pleasure, and getting everything but. Joy, biblical joy has to be cultivated. It's not fast. Fast joy is what you get from your phone. Real joy you have to sing about, you have to talk about, you have to, you have to produce, you have to cultivate it. It has to be sustained. I think it in- includes all the good feelings. I, th- I, I, I personally think it it's, it's, feels good. But real joy is found the way the psalmist found it. 
being honest about the way things are and crying out for God's face, His goodness. And when we do that, when we choose to do that, it can become a habit. And this is where the joy center of their brain gets, gets, gets really tricky because uh, dopamine, the, the joy center, when you tell people the, the, the core emotions, anger, sadness, fear, disgust, and joy, everybody's response is, why is there only one good one? That's not actually how it works. Like, there's no good or bad emotion. Nothing good happens in the world until somebody gets angry. Like, anger is actually a really good emotion because that's why we change things. When we get sick of things the way they are, we change them. Like, you never change anything for joy. Like, joy is, when things feel good, you just stay there. This feels great. You know, you don't, you don't change until you get disgusted with yourself. And then you're like, I don't want to be like this anymore. That's a productive emotion in that moment. And joy is tricky because even though joy is, is why we, we do the things that are, that are good, it's also why we get addicted to things. Cocaine lights up the joy center of the brain. And that's why people get stuck on it. Because they're like, man, that feels amazing. And their brain is like, I want more of that. That felt really good. And that's where addiction comes from. I gotta stick to my notes. <laughs> but the, the fun thing is, good things can be that same way. If we cultivate real joy, if we stimulate the joy center of our brain doing healthy things, it can get addictive too. Have you ever felt that at church? Like when you first come to church and it's awkward and it's weird and you're like, I don't know about that. That's kind of a, like everybody was super smiley and I don't know about that many smiley people. Like it feels weird. And then before long you're like, like you feel weird if you don't go. And you're like, I need it. I need church. I need, <laughs> I was like you're a junkie. Like I gotta get back in and get some church. Like it's because your joy is addictive. And it's supposed to be addictive. And when we cultivate real joy, good joy, it's supposed to be addictive. That feeling where you want to be around your people and you want to sing and you want to experience God, that's a great thing. Your brain is wired so that we can make a habit out of God's face. How cool is that? So how do we respond to this? I'm really glad that I chose this psalm to unpack joy this year. Because um, one of the things we've been doing in this series is looking at the background of this psalm to see if we can understand what's happening in the context. And so the first week, we talked about David writing this song right after he took the throne and kind of and kind of moved into Jerusalem. How cool that was! Second week, Solomon was writing, you know, right after this famous prayer for wisdom to lead God's people well. And then last week we talked about how Psalms 146, the first psalm and the final Hallel, is kind of like the the exclamation point at the end of the book of of uh, the Psalms and it was most likely written by some of the rabbis who were taken into captivity you know, because they're the ones that put the book together and then wrote this last little chunk. Well, this psalm is called an Asaph psalm. Asaph was one of the worship leaders that David appointed to serve in Jerusalem when he brought the ark to Jerusalem. He gave people jobs and Asaph was one of the worship leaders. And those kinds of jobs back then were handed down through the family. And so when it says Asaph psalm, it's, it means it's one of the children of Asaph. Somebody in the Asaph family wrote this music. So it's basically like the Jackson 5 or the, you know, the Bee Gees or the Jonas Brothers, I guess. Um, you know, this is like a family music thing. Um, and here's what I like about that. By the context of this psalm, um, this is pretty late in Asaph's lineage. So this is probably Asaph's great-great-grandson or something. This is down the line a little bit. Most likely, David and Solomon are gone. Um, so this, this, this writer, the guy that wrote this particular Asaph psalm, is from a lineage of songwriters. He's down the line. So this is someone who was most likely raised in temple. 
who knows all the memory verses, who, who went to private school and never missed church. This is, a, this is a church guy that wrote this psalm. So this psalm was where this guy is desperately trying to find joy, like begging God to show his face, the source of all joy. This songwriter is crying out for God in a painful time, and it's someone who knows God and knows God well. And this is a huge comfort to me on, on weeks like this because there are some days, there are some days that are awesome where you're surrounded by, by babies like today. Like, those are days where joy is easy. Like, you look at a baby, joy is easy. Two, two weeks ago at small group, actually, we were all pretty down. Um, Lena had gotten some rough news. Becky was in the hospital. Um, and uh, Alfred and Christina, well, I think it might have just been Christina, I don't know, maybe both of them, brought Maxine. And we just passed her around the room and just like smelled her. Like it was like, I want to hold the baby. <laughs> like and we talked about how good just holding the baby, like it's like therapy. Like we just passed the baby around. Like my turn, my turn, I need some. Like good for some, some days the joy's there. And then there's some mornings it's not. And it's good to know that that's okay. It's good to know that the Bible includes church people who are struggling to find joy. And they're crying out for God to look down and show some joy. It does my heart good to know that even the experienced believers in the Scripture, like the psalmist, still need every once in a while to go hunting for joy. Because sometimes it's elusive. But Advent's a funny season. Because we focus on these four virtues that are actually really lacking in our world. Peace, hope, love, joy. And sometimes it's hard to talk about these things in a world that, that lives the way, we, the way our world does because they, they sound like these cheap pie-in-the-sky platitudes when you don't have them. Like, peace on earth. We need peace on earth. And that's what makes Advent different. Advent is a season of waiting. That's what Advent is about. It's about waiting. It's a season we, we celebrate Jesus' arrival into our story, yes, but that's Christmas. When you celebrate Christmas, that's what you do. You celebrate a day that happened, and that's good. But Advent is, is about believing that Jesus is not done arriving. It's not over yet. We're still waiting. Yes, He came, and that's beautiful, and we celebrate that, and we give gifts, we put up trees, that's amazing. But He's not done yet, and that is so important. Jesus not only continues to arrive in our story over and over and over again, but He is coming back and that's important. That's part of what we do in Advent. We celebrate the fact that He's not done. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. And this isn't just some vague apocalyptic promise. You know, we could, we could dive into end time stuff and that's always fun and whatnot, but, uh, but I do know Jesus is coming back and I, and, and, and that's super important because if you look around our world right now, there's not much hope. If you look around the world right now, there's not much peace and there's not much joy and there's not much true love. And knowing that He's coming back to fix things is why we celebrate Advent. We need Him to come and fix our broken world. So as we lean into these virtues for a month, it's supposed to be so we recognize that there, there's not enough of them. It's like we focus on these four things so that we can go, wow, we really need Jesus. Because there's not enough hope in this world. There's not enough peace in this world. The songs that this world are playing are all the wrong songs. Right now, I can't express how ready I am for the world to be put right, where there's no cancer, there's no hate, there's no more fear and depression, there's, where He wipes away every tear from every eye. That's what we're waiting for. 
Waiting for Jesus to usher in the world is what usher these things into the world is what Advent is all about. But until that day, God does smile on us. Yes, life can fill up with dark clouds, but but God does in Christ roll back the clouds and say, "This is my beloved child, who I'm well pleased." And only then do we look into His face and find true joy. Twenty-five years ago, when I went to bed grumpy and pouting and feeling cheated, only to find that God was producing true joy in me as I woke up at two in the morning and found out I was safe. I know that's a silly story, but I do believe with all my heart that even on days when we feel awful and we feel cheated and we feel forgotten, even those days will give way to joy if we wait for it. And I think that's worth waiting for. So the way that I'd love to respond to this message this week as we prepare for Christ's arrival into our stories yet again next weekend is to join the psalmist and cry out for God's face to shine on us, to smile on us, for God's face to shine on Brett and Lena and the kids, for God's face to shine on Sheila and Nicole as they celebrate Christmas with a big hole in their heart still. So many who who live in acute awareness that the world is not yet the way it's supposed to be. And we have to keep crying out until it is. Cry out for God to shine His face on us even in the midst of the brokenness. Because that is when we experience deep and abiding joy.